All right, Luke 9, new chapter, new theme. Idea of Luke 9, 1 through 50, who is Jesus? That's the big question. We're actually going to look at that in a couple of weeks. We're going to look at this section, verses 1 through 17, today from, this, from the lens, from the perspective of what does it look like to live like a missionary. Uh, again, the, play, the way these 17 verses fit in the whole chapter is their preparation for this question, who is Jesus? What we're going to do is put that on hold, and we're going to use these three uh, episodes to say, who, to say what does it look like for us to live like missionaries. I don't know if you realize or not, if you're a Christian, then you're a missionary. If you're someone who said yes to Jesus, then you're someone who he wants to send. That's what, you, that's what a missionary is. Someone who he wants to send to a particular people or a particular place to accomplish a particular purpose. Fundamentally, if you're a Christian, your identity is son or daughter of God. That's the most, uh, that's the most core thing about you. It's the one thing about you that can never change because it's rooted in the fact that God has adopted you into his family. God's adopted you into his family, and so that makes you a son or a daughter, and that's more stable than anything else about you. It's more stable than any relationship that you have. It's more stable than any uh, accomplishment. It's more stable than any personal characteristic of yours. The most stable thing about you is the fact that God has adopted you into his family. That's something that's not going to change. And so that's what your identity fundamentally is rooted on. I'm a son or I'm a daughter before I'm anything else. And as a son or a daughter, God has invited you into the family business. Not because he has to, because he wants to. God is on a mission He's, he's establishing the kingdom of his son on the earth. He's reconciling all things. He's making all things new. He's reversing the effects of the fall. However you want to say that, God is on a mission. And what he says to his children is, come and do this with me. It's take your child to work day. And that's what he's doing. Not because we add anything to him, but because he's chosen to work through us to accomplish his purposes. So if you're a Christian, you're a son or a daughter, you've been invited into the family business that makes you a missionary. That makes you someone who's sent by God to a particular person or excuse me, particular people or place to accomplish a particular purpose. We're going to look at three sections today. You see them there. All of these things center around this idea of living like missionaries. Before we do that, I'm going to push pause and come over here. Uh, If you're going to be a missionary, you have to understand the context that you're being sent into. If you're being sent to Mexico, you don't learn German. It's not going to help you there. You need to know where you're going. You need to know the hopes and the dreams and the fears and the aspirations of the people that you're going to Serve the people you're going to minister to. You need to know the lay of the land, if you like. And so part of it for us is recognizing most of us are not going to be sent overseas. We're sent to the life that we currently have, and we need to understand the context that we've been sent to. There was a big Supreme Court thing on Friday. You know about that. I'm going to speak off the top of my heart about that in light of this idea of living like a missionary. A few things. Christians. Your life is defined by the Bible. It was defined by the Bible on Thursday. It was defined by the Bible on Saturday. Nothing changed for you. God decides, and he still decides. If God defines, then his definitions win. Genesis, Matthew both say, here's what a marriage is. It's between a man and a woman. So that's what it is. Not because you're a big or any of those things. It's because that's what God says, and you're just repeating The definition. So as a Christian, your life is lived under the authority of the Bible and nothing changed about that. If there are other authorities 
that move in a direction that contradicts the Bible, then you stand as a Christian on the authority of the Bible and you face the consequences with a smile, whatever those happen to be. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, go back and read it, Daniel 3. We're not bowing down, king. You can throw us into the furnace. Our God can deliver us, but even if he doesn't, we're not bowing down. Whatever the consequences are to living under the authority of the word of God, we face those with a smile. If, we're, if you get a label put on you, if you don't get a promotion, if we lose tax-exempt status, I don't know that any of those things will happen. But if any of those things were to happen, well, that's part of it. And that, not, nothing there fundamentally has changed. The understanding of what marriage is hasn't changed overnight. God decides, and as Christians, we live under his authority. We live in a post-Christian society. I don't think that's news to you, but it may be. And that didn't start on Friday. That started in the 1960s. Christianity for a long time had a place of prominence in the public sphere, in the public sphere. Because the Bible said so, that, like, that carried weight. Christians, Christianity, the church with the capital C, there was a place in the public sphere that was honored. Since the 1960s, that has become less and less so to where we are now, where the church, Christians, Christianity is on the fringe. It's just it's where we're on the margins now. And the decision on Friday did not make that happen. It may have clarified that for some of us. But that we've been moving in that direction for the past 50 years easy. Some of the reasons for that are our responsibility. Some of the reasons for that are outside the responsibility of the church. But that is the fact. And if you look at the church throughout time and around the world, the church is often on the margins. We're not used to that necessarily in the Bible Belt. But that's where the church, if you look again throughout time, And across cultures, that's where the church has tended to be, on the margins, has not had a favored place in society. And if you look at the church on the margin, it often thrives. The church is often vibrant and alive on the fringe. When the church gets pulled into the middle and has this place of prominence, oftentimes the church becomes anemic and compromised. And so that we've moved to this place where because the Bible says so doesn't matter anymore. That's not a reason for anybody to do anything. And I don't know if that is upsetting for you or not, but it's reality. You're on the fringe now. Read Acts. They were on the fringe. Read First Peter. They were on the fringe. The first 300 years of church history, the church was on the fringe and grew massively and had incredible influence on a pagan empire. Look around the world. The church on the fringe does great Work Because we can't rely on our own power and our own connections and the fact that there's this accommodation to us in the culture at large. So I don't want you to see. On one hand, we can weep over certain decisions that have been made. And on the other hand, I don't want you to be discouraged. The sky is not falling. What we are doing is we're joining with the church with a capital C around the world and throughout history that is standing on the fringe and ministers from the, from the margins versus from the center. As a body, collectively, as Stonebridge Church, Inc., we worship, we evangelize, we disciple, we develop community. We're not a political body, and that's not going to change. I don't know that any of you would be moving in that direction or pushing the church to move in that direction, but I just want to be clear that's not the function of the church as the church to function, uh, to, to move politically. And so we won't be doing that. But individually, you have every 
right responsibility if you want to live out the, God's calling on your life. You engage in whatever issues stir you in ways that bring glory and honor to the Lord. So individually, run. You're free. You, however God is leading you to engage, in whatever ways he's leading you to engage, in whatever places, I want you to do that. As a church, we're focused on those things. You individually need to live out your calling. Just a few things. This is not necessarily all biblical. It's just my advice to you. I would say beware of social media. I am not on Facebook. I don't tweet. I'm not on Instagram. So I'm speaking as a foreigner to those of you who are engaged in that, which is probably everybody but me. But I want you to just, I've never in my life heard someone say, I, was, I had this deeply held conviction, and then I read a tweet, and it just changed things for me. I've never heard that. There's a place for social media in terms of getting the word out and those types of things. Not necessarily the place to have deep and sensitive discussions. Your tone of voice does not come through. There's no nuance there. I would, just, I would beware of using that platform to... Uh, try to engage on issues that are significant. I would say, second, God is much more concerned with you becoming like Jesus than you winning an argument. And if in order to win, you have to set aside love or joy or peace or patience or kindness or goodness or gentleness or faithfulness or self-control, then you've lost. The point is not to win. The point is to become more like Jesus. And the last thing I would say is remember who your enemy is. We battle not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual forces. Uh, in dark places. That's what we're doing. Evil spiritual forces. And so keep that in mind. I, I want you to feel free to engage. I don't want you to feel hamstrung at all. I just want you to engage in a way that brings honor to the Lord and that actually furthers his purposes in your life and in the lives of those who you're connecting with. So that's that. So thinking about this idea of living as a missionary with that context, why do we have to be missionaries when there's Six churches within 200 yards of us because we live in a post-Christian culture. The church no longer has a place of prominence. People don't, again, the Bible says so doesn't mean anything. I don't know some of you, I'm 40. I can remember growing up, like there was nothing on Wednesday night. Why? Because people went to church on Wednesday night. It's not the case anymore. All kinds of accommodations that were made for whatever reason to the church and to Christianity are no longer made. We need to re-evangelize our country in a lot of ways. So listen to this, Luke 9, verse 1. When Jesus had called the twelve together, he gave them power, ability, and authority, the right to drive out all demons and to cure diseases. Jesus sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God, to heal the sick. He told them, take nothing for your journey, no staff, bag, bread, money, or extra shirt. Whatever house you enter, stay there until you leave. That town, if people don't welcome you, leave their town and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. So the twelve set out and they went from village to village proclaiming the good news and healing people everywhere. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was going on and he was perplexed because some were saying that John the Baptist had been raised from the dead. Others that Elijah had appeared and still others that one of the prophets of long ago had come back to life. But Herod said, I beheaded John. Who then is this I hear such things about? And Herod tried to see Jesus. When the apostles returned, they reported to Jesus what they'd done. Then Jesus took them with him, and they withdrew by themselves to a town called Bethsaida. But the crowds learned about it and followed Jesus. He welcomed them and spoke to them about the kingdom of God, and he healed those who needed healing. 
Late in the afternoon, the twelve came to him and said, send the crowd away so they can go to the surrounding villages and countryside and find food and lodging because we're in a remote place here. Jesus replied, you give them something to eat. They said, we have only five loaves of bread and two fish unless we go and buy food for all this crowd. About 5,000 men were there, probably 12,000 total. When Jesus, but Jesus said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of 50. The disciples did so, and everyone sat down, taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven. Jesus gave thanks and broke them. Then he gave them to the disciples to distribute to the people. They all ate and were satisfied, and the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. So they each got one, kind of like a party favor, so they remember that experience. So again, the grid, living like a missionary, looking at these three episodes, these three snapshots. So Jesus calls the disciples to himself, and then he sends them back out. That's the rhythm for us. That's the reason we sing so long. It's the reason our services are an hour and a half. It's why we give multiple opportunities for people to respond in terms of getting prayer. When we gather together, Jesus has something to give to us. Power, authority, he's saying there's something that we need from him. And when we gather together, it's not the only place that you can receive from the Lord, but it is a place when we gather together where we can receive from the Lord. And so we want to do that. And that's why we try to take seriously and create create space for God to engage us and to interact with us when we come together. And then he sends us out into our week. You see that he calls the twelve to himself gives them authority and power, and then sends them back, back out. And their assignment is basically to do what he did. He proclaimed the good news of the kingdom. That was their message. He healed the sick. That's what they were to do. He drove out demons. They were to do that as well. And so what Jesus did are the same things that he asked us to do. We want to see his kingdom established on earth as it is in heaven. We want to proclaim the good news. We want to heal the sick. We want to deliver people who are in bondage. Those types of things That's what Jesus asks of us. He calls us together to empower us, and then he sends us out on this assignment. He gives the disciples some instructions. The instructions to me are a bit odd. I would have wanted, if I was one of the twelve, more specifics on what exactly am I supposed to do. Give me an outline of the message I'm supposed to talk about. Tell me how I'm supposed to deal with different illnesses. What if somebody isn't healed? How am I supposed to respond to that? Do you have a map of the place? I would want more detail. He gives very brief instructions, bottom to the top. He says, don't worry if you get rejected. Don't worry about that. You just shake the dust off your feet. That's a sign that you're severing relationship. It's on them. I think he's saying to them, people are going to reject you and you don't need to take it personally. You don't need to take this as a reflection on you or on your ability to spread this good news. They're responsible for their response. You can turn and you can walk away. So, again, living as a missionary, recognize at some point... You will. There's not every response is not going to be positive. He says, now, I don't want you moving around. You're living completely on the hospitality of people in that city. So Jewish hospitality rules. Someone shows up in our town. So they would go to our square. Literally, they would go to the Marietta Square and they would wait for somebody to come and pick them up and say, come stay with me. That's what you would do if you were a guest or a stranger in a town. You would go to the town square. You would wait for someone to say, I'll take care of you tonight, and if you brought that person in, you'd be responsible for their safety, you'd be responsible to feed them, put a roof over their head. So what Jesus says is the first person who, who responds to you, the first person who welcomes you in, that's your base of operation in that village until you're done. 
If you start healing people, then you may get a good reputation. And there may be somebody with a bigger house. And he says, hey, why don't you come stay with me? The answer is no, you're not going to stay with them. This is not about you moving up into nicer and nicer accommodations. It's not about your name. It's not about your comfort. Whoever takes the risk of inviting you in first, they get the blessing of you staying there until you leave. Got it? And then he says, the first thing he says, last for us, don't take anything. I don't want you to take anything on your journey. I think that's the key idea in all of these instructions. When he says don't take anything or take nothing, I think what he's saying is you're going to learn to trust me as you do this. Is this normative for all missionary endeavors? No, this is Luke. This is the end of Luke. Jesus says this is in an upper room last night with the disciples. When I sent you out, did you lack anything? He's referring back to this. He's referring to their first ever mission trip. No, we had everything. And he says, but from now on, if you have a purse, take it. And a bag, take it. And if you don't have a sword, sell your coat and get one. The deal was not the the mechanics of what they could or could not take. On this first missionary journey, what Jesus was trying to do was to get them to trust him at a deeper level. I don't know when in his three-year public ministry this happened. I tried to figure it out. Nobody seems to have a great answer. My assumption is it's somewhere in the last year. This is the last third. I would say he's pushing towards maybe even the last six months of his ministry. And so what he's saying, sending them out, here's a test run. Here's an apprenticeship. I'm not going to be here forever. The clock for me is ticking down and you're going to have to learn to trust me when you can't see me. And so here's a chance for you to do that. Here's a short term opportunity for you to trust me when you can't see me, because in just a few months, that's how you're that's how it's going to be from you. I'm going to send you back out and you're not going to be able to see me anymore and you're going to have to trust me. So don't bring a staff. A staff would protect you. You've got to trust me for your safety and your security as you're going from village to village to village. What else does he say? Don't bring a bag. You've got to trust me every day. You can't, you can't store a bunch of stuff. You can't get provisions for today to last you till tomorrow. Every day you're going to have to trust me anew. Don't bring any bread. You've got to trust me for your most basic needs. No extra, mo- no extra shirt, no money. No backup plans. No safety nets. You've got to trust me completely. That's what he's trying to get them, I think, to understand on this first missionary journey. He wants, to, he wants them to have to live trusting him for their needs day by day by day. They obviously do a good job. Herod hears about it. I, I don't know how long they're gone. I'd assume we'll call it three weeks. It's enough time for them to do enough ministry that reports get up to the king. And Herod's going, what's happening? Who is this? We're going to come back to that in a couple of weeks. But for now, the thing that I thought was most interesting, the 12 are doing the work. Peter, James, John, those are the guys doing the work. Who gets the credit? Jesus. Herod says, he doesn't say who's Peter. He doesn't say who's Jesus. He doesn't say who's Matthew. Excuse me, who's Judas. He doesn't say who's Matthew. He says who's Jesus. That's the one. So somehow these guys are doing their work effectively and in such a way that Jesus is getting credit for it. If you're going to be a missionary, you're going, there's going to be a reaction. There's going to be a stirring at some point. And hopefully you're doing what you're doing in such a way that gives Jesus credit and not you. Hopefully he's the one that people are talking about, not you. Then you have the feeding of the 5,000. There's a lot going on here. 
I think the main thing Jesus wants us to see is that he works through people. This is the only miracle outside of the resurrection that's in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. This is it. Just the feeding of the 5,000 is recorded in all four Gospels other than Jesus' resurrection. And I think the reason is this is the only miracle that I can remember where Jesus works through people. He also does it in the feeding of the 4,000, but that's the same thing effectively. Every other miracle we see, Jesus is dealing directly with the person who's blind or the person who's paralyzed or the person who's dead, person who's demonized. It's Jesus and them one-on-one. This miracle, the picture I have is Jesus is kind of up in the front, and he's giving the disciples this boy's lunch, who are then distributing it, distributing to this crowd of 12,000 broken up into groups of 50. And as they're distributing what Jesus is giving to them, it's multiplying. That's the picture I have in my mind. And I think Matthew wanted his audience to know, and so did Mark, and so did Luke, and so did John, because it's an anomaly in Jesus' ministry for him to work through people. But once Jesus is ascended into heaven, it's normative. It's what he does from now on. He works through people. And each one of those writers wanted to make sure that their audience knew, hey, he's done this before. This is how he work. He, he, he's looking to work through you. Remember, he did it when he fed the 5,000. He worked through his followers. He sent his followers out to meet spiritual needs, preach the good news, and he worked through his followers to meet physical needs. You feed them. I think that's the point here. If you're going to be a missionary, you've got to recognize that God wants to work through you. You have to make yourself available. A couple of other things off of this, um, this parable. God determined, God's the determining factor in a situation. The size of the need is irrelevant. The size of the need is not the determining factor. The amount of resources we have is not the determining factor. It's absurd to think you could feed 12,000 people with one lunch. That's it's crazy. Go to the deli and buy lunch and then think about it. You couldn't feed the hundred and something people who are in here much less 12,000 people. It's ridiculous. And I think the, the absurdity of feeding that many people with that little bit of food is to make the point. God is the decisive factor. He's the determining factor. His willingness and his power makes all of the difference. The size of the need doesn't matter. The amount of resources you have doesn't matter. If God is in the mix... He is the one who decides. I don't know what that means for you as you think about living your life as a missionary. What's, what's the big, what's the 12,000 person need for you? What is that? What's the need that if you were to look at your own resources, you would say, no, it's not. Can you just send them home? Let them get their own food. We can't do that on our own. We can't, I can't meet this. And you may even say, God doesn't want me to meet this. I don't have the resources to even begin to engage this need. Uh, hopefully this story will encourage you. Other thing I was thinking about, you can read this in Mark 6. He gives a little more background than Luke does, a little more context to what's going on. I think the disciples are pretty grouchy at this point. Mark 6 says they come back and they, I think they have this expectation based on what Jesus says that they're going to get to spend the day with him. They've, they've been split up in pairs. So they haven't been together. And now they come back together and they're given this report on what's happening, Jesus kind of pulls them away. They're going to spend some time together. The Bible says there's so many people around them, they hadn't even had time to eat. So I think they're hungry. I think they're tired. If you can imagine the, maybe the, the emotional strain, if we can call it that, of having to trust every single day for bread, 
for a place to stay, for God to work through you as you're preaching and trying to do this work of healing. If you can imagine that, showing up in a new town every few days and just saying, well, hopefully somebody is going to take care of me. That can wear on you. So I think they're wiped out after three weeks of that. And I think they're thrilled because things have gone well. Maybe they're thinking Jesus is going to give some awards out. I don't know. But they're looking for time alone with him. And Jesus says that's what we're going to do. And then all of these crowds come after them. And Mark says Jesus is moved by compassion. Luke says Jesus welcomes them. And he does what he does. He ministers. He heals. And he teaches. It's the end of the day. And the disciples come up. And they say, you've got to cut these guys loose. This is the time for the big meal. And we don't have any food. And Jesus says, you feed them. And I think the disciples at that point are about done with him. And I think they respond pretty sarcastically. What do you want us to do? Go buy food for... They don't have any money. Who's got food? Who's got money for 12,000 people? They don't have that. I think they're being sarcastic. What do you want us to do, Jesus? We don't have any food. Do you want us to go buy it? I think they're at the end of their rope because of kind of their expectations for the day are not being met. I was thinking about this particularly in light of the culture that we live in. If you're going to be a missionary, at some point, you have to recognize your time is not your own. And that's hard. Trust, okay, we can do that. Cause a stir, all right, I can get my mind around that. God wants to use me, yes. My time is not my own. I'm not so sure that I'm on board with that. Have y'all read the screw tape letters? Yes? Good. If you haven't, I would encourage you to. C.S. Lewis, 31 chapters. Each chapter is five pages. You can have it done super fast. It's a picture of temptation from the perspective of the devil. And here's two quotes. This is what I think the disciples were wrestling with. It's not fatigue simply as such that produces anger or any other sin, but unexpected demands on a man already tired. I think that's what the disciples were. I think they were done. They'd spent three weeks on the road engaged in pretty intense and significant ministry. And they come home and they just want to reconnect with each other. They want to reconnect with Jesus. They're hungry. And then all these crowds come and they want Jesus to send them away and he won't. He ministers to them. They're like, well, okay, that's what he does. And then at the end of the day, they're They've got nothing in the tank. They're already tired. And Jesus says, you feed them. I think they're not happy about that at all. Now, you will have noticed that nothing throws a person into a passion. So you can think of that as kind of this sinful fit so easily as to find attractive time, which he reckoned on having at his own disposal, unexpectedly taken from him. This is what they thought. This is our day off. We've been working for three weeks. Now we've finally got some time. And Jesus said we're going to go hang out on the shore of the lake with a picnic. That's what we're going to do. It's our time. And then the crowds come. And rather than sending them away, he says, take care of them. And they're put out by that. I think there's something there for us. We see this, the, the enormity of his compassion that he's, he ministers to the crowd lovingly. We see the limits of the disciples' compassion. And I'm much more in their direction. If it's my day off and someone knocks on the door, I don't answer it. Ever. It goes to voicemail. That's what I, and, we, and it's boundaries. And some of that is good and healthy and right. But if I'm going to be a missionary, I have to recognize my time is not my own. 
And I have to be willing for God to impose on me. If that's what, how I want to see it. Somehow, like I didn't create, I didn't give myself 24 hours in a day. He, it's all a gift to me. But if I'm going to somehow see it as mine, which is a bit silly. I didn't make it, but somehow it's mine. And God, then to me, that's God imposing on me in some ways. And I've got to, I've got to, I've got to figure that out. I have to figure out how to create space in my mind and my heart for God to direct me even when I'm tired. Even when I've already decided this is how I'm going to spend my day, this is how I'm going to spend my weekend, this is how I'm going to spend my one free hour that I have. Obviously, there's a ditch over here for workaholism and performance. But I think what we see here in the disciples is if I'm going to be a missionary, I have to say I'm available. I'm available for you to work through me. My time is not my own. I'm on your schedule, not my schedule. That is a hard thing to say yes to, particularly if you feel crunched and stressed and squeezed already. To say, I've got to create more space or at least be willing for God to put more stuff in front of me. It's a hard one. If he's a good father, we can trust him. He's not looking to overload and overwhelm us. But that, again, it can be a hard thing to say yes to on the front end. We're going to pray. We have a few minutes. So I want you to close your eyes and pray with me. In your mind, I want you thinking about this. You're a missionary. You're a missionary because you're a son. You're a missionary because you're a daughter. And God is inviting you into the family business. And he is thrilled about the prospect of you working with him. He doesn't need you. He wants you. And the way he's set things up is he said, I'm going to work through you. I don't care how big the need is, and I don't care how small your resources may seem. That's irrelevant. I'm in this, and I want to work through you. You've got to trust me. This is a relational endeavor. You've got to trust me. Some people may reject you. You will cause a stir if you live like a missionary. But I want you to trust me in that. I want to use you to advance my kingdom in the places where I'm planting you. I want you to make yourself available to me. Can you trust me with your time? For many of us, that's harder than trusting him even with our money. Can you trust me with your time? If you'll say yes and make yourself available, come to me. I'll give you everything you need. I'll fill you up day after day, week after week. And then I'll send you out to a people. I'll send you out to a place. And I'll send you out with a purpose. So two categories. One, you know you're sent. And you know who you're sent to or where you're sent. Like you get it. I'm a missionary too. And you can fill in the blank. I want to pray with you this morning that God would fill you up again, that he would give you authority and power to be effective in that sphere of influence. Some of you are going, That's you, you are, it's gibberish to me. That makes no sense. Never heard anything like this or it's not me. I'm too old. My ship has sailed. I'm in the middle of career and family. I'm too busy. There's no space. I don't know enough. 
I've messed up too often, whatever it is. And what we want to do is pray for you to get some clarity, to discover your sentness. Most likely, step one is to recognize where whatever you're doing tomorrow is where God sent you. He sent you to that three-year-old, or he sent you to that office, or he sent you to that neighborhood. Whatever it is that your day brings, usually the first step is to say, all right, I'm a missionary in these relationships and in these places where God has already planted me. Then as you begin to think that way, he, he will most likely begin to highlight something within the context of your already life for you to dive deeper into. That may not be it, but that's often the way he works. So if you're asking for clarity, I don't want you to think that you're coming forward for God to send you to another country. It's a very small percentage of people who he sends that way. For most of us, he's already got us where he wants us. He just wants us to recognize that he's the one that got us here. And to begin to live accordingly. So God, my prayer for men and women in this room. First, we would recognize that we've been adopted into your family. We're sons and daughters before we're anything else. Then as your sons and daughters, you invite us into the family business. And God, I pray for those who already know where you've sent them. God, would you empower them this morning to be even more fruitful and more effective in those spheres. And God, I pray particularly for those who don't know. This is new information. It's unclear. God, I pray that you would begin to clarify their sentness to them. That tomorrow they will begin to say, all right, I'm a missionary in this cubicle. I'm a, com- I'm a missionary at this dinner table. I'm a missionary in this store. I begin to look at life through those lenses. And I pray we'd all be amazed at the way we see your kingdom erupting in our midst. In Jesus' name, amen. We have ministry teams here up front. If you're on those teams, if you come forward. Again, we'll pray with you about anything you have going on. But if one of those two things struck you, we would love to pray with you about that. So you guys can stand and Bo will uh, dismiss us after this song.